For all you elk hunters out there, chasing turkeys is basically the same thing. I know the reaction you just gave me, but don't knock it till you try it and don't try it without OnX. The Hunt app will not only help you find new areas on public ground, but I use it to find out landowner info to get permission on private ground that I see birds on as well. OnX Hunt has a special offer for you. Use code CAL to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com slash hunt and find more birds this spring. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. Hey, I just sat down with the owners and operators of Maui Nui Venison. They're on a mission to balance access to your populations on Maui while giving back to the community and run a totally sustainable operation. For folks like me who want to get your own meat but aren't always successful, you can become a snack subscriber, get some Axis Deer sticks sent right to your door. Visit MauiNuiVenison.com. That's M-A-U-I-N-U-I Venison.com and use promo code CAL for 20% off your first order. From Meat Eaters World News Headquarters in Bozeman, Montana, this is Cal's Week in Review with Ryan Cal Callahan. Now, here's Cal. This past January 9th, prison staff at Pacific Institution, located outside of Abbotsford, B.C., found a carbon fiber arrow with a bag of crystal meth tied to it. The bag reportedly held 9 grams of methamphetamine worth $7,200 Canadian. The prison is also home to a rehabilitation facility, and there have reportedly been several novel attempts to get drugs from the outside to the inside. But this is the first archery attempt. Now, you may be asking, what the heck does this have to do with conservation? In 1972, the Pittman-Robertson Act was amended to include the sale of archery equipment. All archery equipment sold in the United States includes an 11% excise tax with the funds going to things like habitat, access, and wildlife research. Speaking with a friend of mine, the owner of Day 6 Arrows, he and his customer base contribute about 50 cents per arrow to Pittman-Robertson. The recently passed Pittman-Robertson Modernization Act now allows for some of those funds to be used to generate more interest in hunting through marketing. Marketing intended to recruit new hunters. Hunter numbers have been in decline, and since state wildlife agencies are funded primarily through license and tag sales, a loss of hunter numbers equates to a lack of funding for our wildlife managers. I personally do not like to see these funds being used in this way, but there isn't any doubt that this is the situation we are in. The fishing equivalent to PR is the Dingle-Johnson Act, which has already allowed for a portion of its funds to be used for recruitment purposes. And the marketing has shown success, so fingers crossed. I'm hopeful, as I know we get hundreds of emails and messages from new hunters each week through the various meat-eater channels, that this will pay off. 
but I don't think we should tout the modernization of the Pittman-Robertson Act as a great thing until we realize how we got to this point. Now, back to the story. This Robin Hood of the meth trade is in B.C., but there is still a good chance that the arrow was made by a U.S. manufacturer. I may not like what you are trying to accomplish, Mr. or Miss Meth Smuggler, but I do appreciate how you're trying to do it. This week, wolves in Colorado, coos deer in Mexico, and mysterious Brazilian tunnels. But first, I'm going to tell you about my week. I headed out on a coos deer hunt down to Old Mexico, the northern part of the state of Sonora to be exact. Coos deer are sometimes called a desert whitetail as they resemble the whitetail deer in both the configuration of their rack, the white flag-like tail, and in several of their habits. The coos deer has long been considered a subspecies of the whitetail, as their stature suggests they're something different. They only grow to about 100 pounds for the bucks and right around 65 pounds for the does. These deer are tiny, and their ability to hide or disappear is uncanny. However, I think in modern taxonomy, this deer that we consider a subspecies, or is widely considered by some to be a subspecies, would only be called a southern whitetail. Anyway, hunting coos deer can be a pretty social type of thing. Having a few friends on the mountain, glassing slopes for deer is helpful. A lot of my hunting is very antisocial, so it is a fun kind of change of pace. A good friend of mine, one Brendan Harrington, always repeats the gambler's phrase, luck is where skill meets opportunity. This is me. This is how I win. In terms of coos deer, as in finding one, for me anyway, is where persistence in glassing meets movement. I haven't quite developed the eye for spotting those tiny deer without the advantage of seeing them move first. The deer taste great, they're beautiful, and the food and people in Sonora I find to be absolutely fantastic. One thing I kept thinking on is my Spanish is terrible, but almost without exception, everyone I speak to is always happy to help me work through my questions, often helping me increase my vocabulary along the way. I have found that cooking, hunting, and fishing are international languages in a way, and it is relatively easy to work through logical questions or phrases when interacting with others who do not speak your language but enjoy those activities. That being said, you see these stories in the news of people getting very angry and screaming at people in line at like Starbucks or someplace for not speaking English. If you're in my country, speak the language, you know, that sort of thing. Well, I just have to say, if that was everyone's attitude the world over, I'd probably be dead. At a minimum, far less adventured and traveled. Moving on to some updates. A listener named Dominic from the UK wrote in with a poem taught to young shooters he thought appropriate to send on the topic of hunting accidents called A Father's Advice. It's good. If a sportsman true you'd be, listen carefully to me. Never, never let your gun pointed be at anyone. That it may, unloaded be, matters not the least to me. When a hedge or fence you cross, though of time it cause a loss, from your gun the cartridge take, for the greater safety's sake. If twixt you and neighboring gun, bird shall fly or beast may run, let this maxim e'er be thine. Follow not across the line. Stops and beaters oft unseen lurk behind some leafy screen. Calm and steady always be. Never shoot where you can't see. You may kill or you may miss, but at all times, think this. All the pheasants ever bred won't repay for one man dead. Keep your place and silent be. Game can hear and game can see. Don't be greedy. Better spared is a pheasant 
than one shared. If you don't remember last week's episode, we talked about a New Year's Day hunting accident and the basic tenets of hunter safety. Treat every gun as if it is loaded. Identify your target and beyond. Always keep your barrel pointed in a safe direction. So thank you for uh, sending that in. As everyone knows, Cal's Week in Review is powered by steel power equipment. Gear I find dependable and tough, which is why I thought this next listener email, provided by Mike Flynn, is so cool. Actually, two things about it are really cool. First, Mike Flynn is my grandpa Jim, a.k.a. Doc Callahan's best friend and old classmate. He recently deceased, or he recently just passed away, rather. They were uh, fighting saints at a Carroll College located in Helena, Montana, class of 1956. But uh, that's a different Mike Flynn than the dude who just wrote in. This Mike Flynn has got a hot tip. He says, add some oyster and shiitake mushroom spores to your canola oil bar oil. Put the oil in a bucket with some screen over the top. Put the mushroom caps on the screen and let the spores fall into the oil. Then use that oil as normal bar oil, cut the stumps a little high for maximum yield, and you have a good chance at producing mushrooms. How's that? Sounds like a hot tip. I have no idea if this mushroom farming technique is true or works, but I really want it to be. If you try that one out, please let me know how it works. Steel makes a canola oil-based bar and chain called Bio Plus that could be worth a shot if you are running a commercial saw, if you are like me or just an occasional chainsaw driver. Regular old canola works just fine. One interesting point on mushroom spores. So if you're a mushroom picker like myself, I often use screens. Like typically I just take the screen door off the back porch, lay it out so it's elevated and air can travel underneath it. And then I lay all my mushrooms on that screen. And one really interesting thing is when those mushrooms start to really dry out and they get stressed, it triggers this self-propagation mechanism and they shoot out all their spores. And on the screen can be left a really cool design by those spores shooting off the mushroom and sticking to the screen. Try that one out for a school science class. Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating, you know, some organ, the heart or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill. I had that when I was a little kid and it was a big deal. Organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients. And as often is the case, those guys were on to something because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from heart and soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised grass-fed and finished cattle heart and soils unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean convenient taste-free capsule find out more at heartandsoil.co And make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. We've all seen plenty of gadgets and fads come and go, but here's one product that stood the test of time. Seafoam motor treatment. Lots of hunters and anglers know that seafoam helps engines run better and last longer. It's really simple. When you pour it in your gas tank, 
Seafoam cleans harmful fuel deposits that cause engine problems. I'm talking common stuff like hard starts, rough engine performance, or lost fuel economy. Seafoam is an easy way to prevent or overcome these problems. Just pour a can in your gas tank and let it clean your fuel system. You probably know someone who has used a can of seafoam to get their truck or boat going again. I guarantee you've listened to them because I use it, you know, regularly. People everywhere rely on seafoam to keep their trucks, boats, and small engines running the way they should the entire season. Help your engine run better and last longer. Pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. For all you elk hunters out there, chasing turkeys is basically the same thing. I know the reaction you just gave me, but don't knock it till you try it and don't try it without OnX. The Hunt app will not only help you find new areas on public ground, but I use it to find out landowner info to get permission on private ground that I see birds on as well. OnX Hunt has a special offer for you. Use code CAL to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com hunt and find more birds this spring. Now we're going to make a quick stop at the corrections desk. Beetlejuice, the flickering star in the constellation Orion, is in the Milky Way galaxy, not in our solar system, as I stated. Thank you for the correction from a dude named Ali in Ontario. Ali writes his name in a way that uh, he puts a little hyphen behind it and says, I am a dude, which is why I included the word dude. Thank you again, Ali. Moving on to the contentious predator desk. Wolves are both in the state of Colorado and on the ballot, which is tricky because the ballot initiative is to bring wolves into the state of Colorado. Colorado Parks and Wildlife announced the presence of wolves in northwest Colorado near the Utah and Wyoming borders. A few things being considered on this topic. Should wolves be transplanted by humans into other parts of the state, like Colorado's West Slope? Or should the wolves just be left to move into the state, as the wolves would likely do through natural dispersal and avoidance? And last, should the general public be allowed to vote on game management issues? Being as we are 25 years down the road from wolf reintroduction in my home state of Montana via Yellowstone National Park, I'll tell you that although I personally do not have any deep-seated issues with wolves, I really did not enjoy the process of wolf reintroduction. One very small story I have from this time is I spotted my very first wolf ever in the Anaconda Pintler Wilderness about 26 years ago. If you're doing the math, that is one year prior to wolf reintroduction. It was a really cool thing. I never encountered a wolf before, and it was amazing. I was incredibly excited to go tell a friend of mine's father, who was actually working on the reintroduction of wolves into the state of Montana. I was in high school at the time, and much to my surprise, when I told my friend's father excitedly about my wild wolf encounter, he replied emphatically that I had not seen a wolf as there were no wolves in the state. This guy wasn't open to any arguing, and being as I had no proof, the conversation was short. I saw a wolf. No, you didn't. There are no wolves. At the time, the only way wolf reintroduction was going to happen was if there were no wolves in the state of Montana. My very unscientific finding was not going to change anything. I was just a jacked up kid high on wildlife, and this encounter with a wildlife professional was hurtful. I was not a wolf killer or hater, just an observant outdoors guy. If we had not been trying to reintroduce wolves, this not fun, discouraging encounter would have been a fun, encouraging encounter. 
This is just a very small, insignificant thing, but I never looked at my buddy's dad in the same way. You have to be careful with absolutism and wildlife, as we are seeing right now in Colorado. I did not believe that voters should be brought in to decide or influence wildlife management. Opening this door would set a dangerous precedent. Of course, to play devil's advocate, you have to admit that, you know, we do a lot of voting on things that most of us have no experience in. I'll tell you, I hated it when someone with zero carpentry experience or field dressing experience would tell me how to do things. But then again, I have no experience in foreign and domestic affairs for the entirety of a nation, and I have no problem voting for who should be president. Not exactly apples to apples, I know, but I do wonder if we can get a petition big enough to get the reintroduction of wolves on a ballot, could a petition get other animals with charisma on the ballot? Especially in a state with legal marijuana and possibly legal psychotropic mushrooms. You may get someone knocking on your door one day with a petition to introduce, I don't know, something really wild to the state. Snow leopards or ibex or something. Although I don't think that likely, I am saying some things shouldn't be left up to the general voting public. For more on this subject, check out Brody Henderson's article, Should Wolves Be Reintroduced to Colorado? Only at TheMeatEater.com. Moving on to the feral cat desk. A study found in scientific reports titled Extraterritorial Hunting Expeditions to Intense Fire Scars by Feral Cats found that feral cats, although typically bound to home ranges two to three kilometers across, will travel up to 12 and a half kilometers to burn areas. The likely reason for travel, good hunting in an area with vulnerable animals lacking cover. Cats fitted with tracking collars and cameras were successful in their hunts 70% of the time in burn areas. In this study, the cats averaged 7.2 kills every 24 hours, which doesn't leave much time to eat. The 13 cats in this study left their kills uneaten 25% of the time. In some areas of Australia, 100 feral cats per kilometer have been recorded. Taking into consideration the more than prolific fire season in Australia and the chew toy size of some of the continent's threatened species, it seems like now is the time to act on the feral cat issue. If not now, when? As a reminder, here in the U.S., outdoor cats, that includes the feral cats and those cats you kick outside at night, kill a possible 3.7 billion birds per year and an astonishing 20.7 billion small mammals a year. Those are catastrophic numbers for the record. You guys catch that one? <coughs> Moving on. We have talked about Burmese pythons in southeast Florida several times here on the Week in Review. Since the year 2000, the non-native python has slithered its way to possibly the top of the growing hit list of invasive wildlife in Florida. These snakes breed prolifically are incredibly hard to spot, and they like to eat. In response to their growing numbers, state efforts to remove pythons, such as the Python Challenge, as well as cash incentives for captured snakes from the South Florida Water Management District and the Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission, you also get bonus money for big snakes and females bearing eggs. Again, this uh, should be new to you, all things we have covered, so listen up for your very important public service announcement. There are a handful of high-dollar snakes out in the Everglades and Pine Islands that should not be touched. One snake in particular, Elvis, has been slithering through the swamps for seven years, carrying a geolocation tag. 
Elvis has been continuously tracked longer than any other Burmese python on the planet, which makes him the king. Of the whole wide world. If you think about it, it also makes him and other tagged and monitored Burmese pythons very expensive. One study led by the University of Florida estimated costs of betrayal events, that's when the tracking of a Judah snake led to the capture of other snakes during the breeding seasons of 2007 through 2012 at $11,029 per python. These so-called Judas snakes are providing a very important role of seeking out female snakes in a way humans cannot. So, if you happen to take that family trip to capture pythons, let the ones with the orange tags and three-digit marks on their sides go. And you can pat yourself on the back. You may not have caught Elvis, but you did catch a VIP. That's a very important python. Moving on to the paleo desk, and we aren't talking diet trends. The giant armadillo of South America can weigh up to 90 pounds. They dig burrows that are roughly 16 inches in diameter and 20 feet long. What researchers are trying to answer is, what digs a 5-foot-wide, 250-foot-long burrow? For those of you not hip to the lingo associated with burrowing animals, a burrow typically references a hole or a tunnel, a place for an animal to hide, store food, give birth, or just live in general. Rabbits are often associated with burrows. In this case, it would take one heck of a rabbit. Found almost exclusively in Brazil, paleo burrows are a real mystery both in regards to what did the digging and when. Some of the discovered tunnels are straightforward shafts, others have turns that connect to other shafts, forming a network of burrows. Possible culprits for the what, as in who's doing the digging, is the giant ground sloth. The giant ground sloth disappeared around eight to 10,000 years ago. Some of these sloths grew to the size of modern elephants. <laughs> the other possible excavator has been identified as Glyptodon, the original giant armadillo. This guy was 11 feet long and possibly as heavy as 4,400 pounds, roughly the size of a black rhino. Which brings up yet another question. What are animals this size having to dig burrows for? The first paleo burrow was discovered near Rondonia. This is a branching tunnel system measuring 2,000 feet in length with an estimated 4,000 metric tons of dirt and rock excavated. That's big. While researchers are trying to evaluate mineral and plant deposits to try and determine the exact age of the caves, as well as properly map them in order to see if there is a possible pattern that would help identify the former engineer by comparing them to their modern relatives, so far, the only physical evidence, the only sign that remains of what could have dug the tunnels is the large claw marks the original burrowing animals left behind, which, if you track down the photos of these paleo burrows, makes a pretty darned compelling reason to figure this mystery out. Moving on. Being as it's Super Bowl week, I'm gonna talk football. Just kidding. This story was brought to my attention by Meat Eater's own Spencer Newharth, and it involves the Super Bowl and ice fishing. Back in 1980, in the great sportsman state of South Dakota, near the town of Akaska, which you may have previously heard of as it was at one point, the furthest you could get from a McDonald's in the lower 48, also known as, quote, McFarthest. Another quick fact for you, if you are from the town of Akaska, South Dakota, you are an Akaskan. Anyway, 
A DC-7 aircraft loaded with bales of Colombian marijuana landed at a pre-planned impromptu airstrip about three miles from a group of ice fishermen just leaving the frozen Missouri River. The fishermen had come to the conclusion that the DC-7 was not making a safe landing in this part of South Dakota, and they promptly went to the rescue. Upon finding the plane, they found three individuals with not even one good explanation as to how they got there. Lying to a fisherman is not the smartest move, as anyone willing to sit on the frozen Missouri at the end of January is likely well-practiced in tall tales. Anyway, what I'm saying is, the anglers smelled the scent of something fishy, surrounded the plane, one angler even let the air out of the plane's front tire. Seeing as the plane wasn't going to get any traction, the three men took off into the South Dakota night. Eventually, the authorities arrested six individuals, and in doing so, found out the original plan, which was to land during the Super Bowl when surely everyone in South Dakota would be watching the game, not the night sky. A strong tailwind pushed the schedule to coincide with the fishermen leaving the ice. The Pittsburgh Steelers beat the Los Angeles Rams 31-19, becoming the first team to win four Super Bowl titles, and the ice fishermen became the first in South Dakota to catch $18 million in marijuana. I'm not sure what happened to the smugglers, but the pot was eventually burned near Pier. I could make a joke here about going up and smoke, but you get it. That's all I've got for you this week. Thanks for listening. As per usual, you can always get a hold of me at askcal at themeateater.com. That's A-S-K-C-A-L at themeateater.com. Tell me what I'm missing, what I should be hitting, and what I got wrong. If you're loving the show, tell a friend or two, and you can always leave me a review by hitting that furthest right-hand star. Thanks again. I'll talk to you next week. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel, gum, and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. Simply pour a can in your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. Pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. That's seafoamworks.com to learn more.